you can release music yourself and and still put it in music licensing. And that's the beautiful thing about it. Like, you know, you can have active income, passive income, portfolio income from music because you're selling it yourself, you're getting your own streams, you're getting placements. And then because you're getting these placements, the popularity of the music explodes. So now you're getting income on the front end and the back end. So that's the name of the game, you know, generating multiple income streams. So, you know, you're not working so hard. Your music is working for you. It's easy to get lost in today's music industry with constantly changing technology and where anyone with a computer can release their own music. But I'm going to share with you why this is the best time to be an independent musician and it's only getting better. If you have high quality music, but you just don't know the best way to promote yourself so that you can reach the right people and generate a sustainable income with your music, we're going to show you the best strategies that we're using right now to reach millions of new listeners every month without spending 10 hours a day on social media. We're creating a revolution in today's music industry, and this is your invitation to join me. I'm your host, Michael Walker. All right, and we're here live with Kyle Hunter. Kyle, dude, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. How are you doing today? No problem. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's, it's totally a pleasure, man. Always a pleasure, you know, connecting with you, man. Absolutely. So Kyle Hunter, also known as Kay Sparks, is a musician and an entrepreneur. He's written over 500 songs. Uh, he's recorded with Kid Cudi, over 8.3 million streams on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, the CEO of Rhythm Couture, which is a music library with 40 artists worldwide. And uh, they focus on sync and licensing placements. They've gotten placements on 50 Cent's TV series Power and Nick Cannon, Wild Style Champs, LeBron James had a Powerade campaign, uh, Calvin Klein, Vans, Forever 21, MTV, New York Times. So a lot of places, <laughs> a lot of really <laughs> yeah. great places. And, and you, you were just saying that you just got a new, a couple of new big placements, right? And there's, there's like an NDA on one of them. So you can't like give all the details on one, but. Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of great placements. Yeah, one, we have a, a NDA. So for those listening that don't know what that is, that's a non-disclosure agreement. So we can't really divulge all that. But once it does launch, I'll definitely tell Michael, he'll get the word out to you guys. And yeah, we also, we had something on NBC Sports recently for a big campaign for a, uh, a motorbike. So it's pretty, pretty awesome, man. You know, th things are moving. Yeah, for sure, dude. So specifically, he's got something called Music Licensing Blueprints, where he really dives into what makes a song syncable, how do you establish relationships with the people who actually need those songs, and it's really about helping artists to build a profitable stream of income using sync licensing. Start out with, I'd love to just hear, for anyone who this is their first time connecting with you, could you give a quick introduction where you just share a little bit about yourself and your story and how you, how you started this business? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I grew up in a very musical based household. So my dad, he was in the Air Force, but he also was a jazz player. So there was a lot of jazz being played in the house. We had Miles Davis, John Coltrane, all of this rich jazz culture in the household. Then on the flip side, my mom, she was a school teacher for the New York City Board of Education. But she also was heavy in the church. So there was a Pentecostal church dynamic. So a lot of Shirley Caesar, Mahalia Jackson, all this vintage gospel music. So it was a blended musical household, you would say. And then as I grew, I loved hip hop. Like that was just the, the music that I loved of choice. You know, it was music that spoke to my surroundings. Like I grew up in, in South Jamaica, Queens, New York. So the neighborhood that I grew up in, it was, it was very rough. And in the city neighborhood, we had a lot of narcotics being sold, a lot of violence, a gang component. So it was a lot of things that we had to deal with growing up. 
but music was the common denominator that was something that was therapeutic. And, you know, we used that growing up, like it was expressive. So regardless of what we dealt with, we used music as an outlet. So that's how I got started in the music. Like I just loved it. I had a real passion to drive for music and, you know, it started out as a uh, poetry and then just putting those words together. I started doing mixtapes in Queens and what we used to do, we would press them up and then we would put them in the trunk of our car and we would drive around the neighborhood selling them. And then sometimes I would take the street team to Manhattan and we would go on a Saturday and everybody would just get those tapes off. So once those tapes really started making noise, I started making a lot of relationships with people up at record labels and just started performing at different shows around New York City. And eventually I got reached out to by an agent that did music licensing. And at that time that was foreign to me, like I didn't know what it was. You know, I was like, well, okay, you know, it sounds viable, but I don't know how legit this is. So I gave them a handful of songs. And then I want to say maybe like three months later, they gave me like five or eight grand for those songs. And I said, wow, I said, this is something that's viable. Like, you know, mentally I had the old school music mentality where it's like you make music and you got to get a record deal. Like that's the only way to make money and a living off of music. But once I got those placements, it opened up a whole new world of opportunity because I realized you don't have to chase a record deal to make income from your music, you know? So after that, you know, I just hit the ground running. I got hundreds of placements, you know, Calvin Klein, Marie Claire, all these different shows, uh, different product endorsements, something for Powerade with a LeBron James campaign, just all these different streams coming in. And eventually we built up such a big catalog, myself and my business partner, my good friend, Robert, we just decided just to create our own company because we wanted to pay it forward. Like we, we really want to help artists. So that was the whole premise of Rhythm Couture, you know, and we've been moving ever since, you know, that's the, that's the small version of the story, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's incredible, man. That's, that's, that's so awesome. And, and also just really inspiring, I think for, you know, really being able to, to showcase that um, starting out in a rough environment that you were able to really to pull through and that music was able to you know, be a part of that expression being able and that you've you know, gone on to, to build a successful business is awesome. So, you know, having both, you know, been through the, the phases of, of growth yourself and now also working with this catalog, working with a lot of artists and, you know, getting songs synced and, and licensed, what would you say are some of the biggest common mistakes or challenges that artists make when they first start um, getting interested in this world of, of licensing? Wow. It's, it's a couple of things. I would say, um, you know, and by the way, that's a great question, Michael, because, you know, a lot of artists need to know this. I would say the first thing is, is presentation, because when you're reaching out to music supervisors or music libraries, how you make your first impression sets the tone for how that person is going to receive you. So I think a lot of times because things have become so accessible with the internet, everybody uses Google and they're like, all right, well, let me look up who the music supervisor is for this show. And I'm going to send them a DM, you know, I'm going to find them on Instagram. I'm going to send them a DM. But I think you have to be cognizant of the fact that these people, including myself, like our DMs, our inboxes get flooded all the time with people with the same thing, you know, and that's, they have a want, which is natural. You want to get your music heard. But I think the best approach a lot of times to negate that would be to do your due diligence. Like if you know that you're a hip hop musician, 
right? And you're reaching out to a music supervisor, but you haven't researched the type of placements that they do. Maybe that's not their genre, particularly that they try to cater to. You know, maybe it's like a rock based type theme that they constantly feed. So do your homework. Like, you know, when you reach out to a company or a music supervisor, say, hey, you know what? I just want to let you know, I'm a fan of your work. I've seen that you've placed music and, you know, Friends or The Handmaid's Tale, and I love your work. And I have a song that sounds like the song that you used in season two, episode three. And, you know, I would love to see if you could check it out and possibly we can work together. That negates the um, the approach out the gate that, you know, you're just shooting blindly. You know, that shows that you've done your due diligence to know who exactly you're talking to and that you have a target in mind. And then you have a mutual interest at that point. So, you know, just always do your due diligence. I would say that's the pitfall a lot of artists don't do, you know? Yeah, and it's it's funny. Across a lot of these different domains, especially when it comes to like reaching out for press or media outlets or anything like that, which is our topics that we've talked about, that same sort of that that underlying fundamental, that principle keeps coming out, which is really about making things relevant, um, as relevant as possible for the people that you're talking to and making it valuable and streamlined and personalized. So, and I, you know, Michael, I just wanted to piggyback off of what you just said too. You said valuable yeah. and that's yeah. key adding value. Like, you know, it, as soon as you send that DM or that email, just realize that now you started the process of a business transaction. And unfortunately it is business. So you have to show to that person, you're adding value. You're bringing value to what they already have. So that's key. Always, you know, you got to show your worth and show them that, you know, you're adding something. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's one of those fundamental skills or assets that, you know, no matter what you're doing, like in any sort of conversation or relationship or negotiation or transaction, you know, focusing on, you know, how can I provide more value? And in some cases, I think as musicians, there's sort of this, we don't necessarily recognize our value or our self-worth, or we think that, that our music isn't really worth anything, or we just don't really fully comprehend our, our value. And because of that, we don't communicate in a way that demonstrates that what we have is valuable. That's, that's really interesting. So what else would, would you say that, that happens pretty commonly in terms of like some of the biggest challenges when artists getting starting out? Like, I guess w one question is, what are, what's like the best way to find the right? So, so we talked about making sure that we've done kind of like the due diligence and done some research, to make sure that you kind of understand that the song that you're presenting is actually something that's going to be valuable for them, that that is relevant to something that they might need. How do, how do they do that type of research and what do you recommend that they that they look for in order to make sure that who they're reaching out to is the right person and that they can present that in a meaningful way? Most definitely. And that's another great question. I would say I, I use the cheat code. You know, that's what I tell musicians to do. And the cheat code basically is that if you watch a television show, if you watch movies, whatever it is that you watch, I always tell people for musicians that are trying to get their music into sync, the end of the show or the end of the movie is the most critical. So you have to sit there and you have to pay attention to those credits because when you watch those credits, it's going to show you who the music supervisor is for that show. So if there's a show that you watch and you notice there's a, a musicality with the theme, meaning that, you know, if you're an R&B artist and they have like real neo soul type music and you feel that you can fit that, you want to pay attention to those credits because the credits are going to show you who that music supervisor is. And then, you know, if you can't really get what you want from that, maybe you might want to go to like IMDB or something like that. And you can also do more due diligence to make sure that you get what you need. So paying attention to those credits is key. 
and I always say that's a cheat code because I mean, it's so easy. They have to list it, right? Like, you know, they're going to list who worked on this show. So that's, that's something that's, that's a good, uh, good method or a good approach, I would say. Mm, awesome. Awesome. So really it's about figuring out who are the music supervisors on the shows that you, that have the kind of music that, that you offer. You can look at the credits, you can go to IMDB. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So how about when it comes to the process of like reaching out and cultivating relationships with those people, how would you recommend, let's say that someone wants to do this and they start uh, making a list of people to reach out to, and then maybe even they start reaching out. Do you have any sort of regular reach out process or like how many times you might follow up or do you recommend following up? And if so, like, yeah, how, how often you, should you follow up and what kind of things should you say when, when you're following up? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So follow up is key. I, I have a saying that uh, it's my mantra. So my mantra is persistence, wisdom, resistance. So essentially, even if you, you come upon some form of resistance, you have to be persistent with what you want, but in a professional way, not an annoying way. And you know, there's a, there's a big difference between the two. So I would say like, just being aware that music supervisors, music licensing companies, we're very busy and we get a lot of emails, like just to full disclosure, like my company, in the course of a month, we could get hundreds of demos. So even though I have an A&R that does that, it's very easy for him to get overwhelmed with all the submissions that he has to, you know, just kind of listen to and try to process to see, well, what fits the catalog? What's, you know, really doesn't fit the catalog at the moment, but it's good. So maybe a couple months down the road, we'll reach back out. So I would say just actually being patient and being strategic. So if you submit something, I would say give it about anywhere from two to three weeks, realistically. And then you just want to follow up with a soft email. And I have to emphasize soft email, not aggressive, right? Like, you know, I sent some music and you guys didn't get back to me. You know, that's a turn off within itself, right? But being professional to say, hey, you know, I appreciate the opportunities to submit music to your catalog. And I would just like to follow up to check on the status of that. Thank you for your time in advance. You know, like you're, you're not aggressive with your tone. You're being appreciative of the time that's being spent to listen to your music. And, you know, you're just being straightforward that, you know, you just want to follow up. There's no harm in that. You know, it's all on the approach. That's, that's the most thing. That's good. Yeah. I, I love, I mean, and one thing to, to reiterate just about his approach right there was for anyone listening right, right now is notice how, he started and ended with gratitude, with like appreciation. You know, like such a graceful, such a graceful way to follow up. And and it's I think it's pretty rare. I mean, anything can happen, but it's pretty rare for people to respond poorly to appreciation. Like mm-hmm. how, how many times have you, unless like it's like fake, like you you don't want it to like necessarily be like like just be false or just like be you know I don't know what the right word is. There's plenty of words that are basically like being false. Oh, gazy. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So like, you know, you want it to be authentic, but, you know, learn how, learning how to cultivate authentic gratitude and appreciation and, and find out how to, how to be graceful on the way that, that you present that is like, it's very rare that it's not, that it's going to rub people in the wrong way. If like you have genuine gratitude, all, all of us want to feel appreciated and, and feel recognized. Most definitely. It's a saying to us as you know, being humble will take you places that money can't. So, you know, you can be a multimillionaire, but you could be a jerk, you know, and just be despised by many people, you know, but, you know, being humble, having humility and showing that you're appreciative, that speaks volume. And to me, that's more powerful than someone who's arrogant and pompous and just, you know, filled with themselves. 
That's so good. So could you talk a little bit about right now, it seems like there's, there's a few different pathways or different opportunities or different ways that if you're an artist with music that you could pursue trying to get syncs and get your songs licensed. For example, you maybe you could make a list and try reaching out directly to music supervisors, or you could work with a company or an agency or find somewhere that, you know, aligns with you to do some of that for you. What are some of the different opportunities or different channels that the artists here could take? And what are some of the pros and cons of, of each way? Oh yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And that's a great question. You, you know, I do a lot of interviews with Michael. You have some of the best questions. I got to give it to you. So <laughs> thanks man. Um, I mean, I've been going for like two and a half days now and, um, <laughs> and it helps that like when I'm rubbing shoulders with, with people like you, I, I think that it's, it's, it's no secret, like, you know, the, the mastermind principle. And like, if you surround yourself with awesome people, then so what, so that's just a reflection of, of your awesomeness, basically is what, awesome, I'm, what I'm trying man. to say. It's <laughs> awesome. I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you. Like you say, your network is your net worth. So that's dope. That's dope, man. So a couple of things, any musician that's trying to get into music licensing, there are a lot of different avenues. I'll break them down. The first approach is a music licensing library, like our company. But what we do, we're essentially the, I would say we're like the mediator between like the music supervisor and the musician. So we have these relationships and, you know, throughout the years, we've provided them with great music. We have a solid business relationship. So they trust us. And because they trust us, we're able to filter musicians through our company to them as well. Or we just do the pitches ourselves. Either way, you know, we have all these different relationships. So a musician can sign with a music licensing library. What those agreements look like for any musician that's not too familiar with those contracts, you have exclusive agreements, then you also have non-exclusive agreements. So non-exclusive agreement means essentially that you have the right to take that song and place it with multiple music libraries. And you, you're not obligated to keep it in one library. What that does on a, a pro side, it gives you freedom. You know, you can actually have that song in as many places as you want working for you. And you're not married. You know, you could think of a non-exclusive agreement as dating, right? Like you're not married. It's like, you know, you can go anywhere, see anybody you want and do what you got to do. The con about that is that a lot of times musicians don't do their due diligence when it comes to the agreements. So I'll give you a perfect example. Some non-exclusive agreements, even though they'll allow you to be in multiple libraries, some of them might put your music in their content ID. And that's where it gets very, very sticky. Now, if anyone listening is not familiar with content ID, I'll break that down too. Content ID is basically like a digital fingerprint for your music. So that means if someone was to upload your song to their fitness video on YouTube without your permission, it would get flagged. And when that video gets flagged, essentially what that means is that you would get paid for all the streams or whatever happens every time that video gets played. Now, when a music licensing library puts your song in Content ID, that presents a challenge for the other music licensing libraries, because now let's say if they get your song in a, a Pepsi commercial and it's a digital campaign, Every time that that's posted on YouTube, they're going to get these content ID claims and they have to get cleared by none other than the other music licensing company that put it in the content ID. So you can imagine if the placement has a big magnitude and it's getting millions of streams, that can become a hassle because now that other music licensing library is going to say, hey, we don't want to work with you anymore. Like, you know, granted, it's not exclusive, but you're not even managing the fact that this song is in content ID that's causing problems for us. So that's where 
non-exclusive and content ID can get a little dicey. On the flip side, you have exclusive music licensing agreements. And normally what I've found with the exclusive is that those are a little bit different because obviously you can't have that song in multiple music libraries. Like you're saying to that company, hey, Rhythm Couture, I'm giving you guys the exclusive right to pitch this song for a selected term. So whether it's a one-year term, two-year term, you're basically entrusting that company to do the right thing and get that song out there. I found that exclusive agreements sometimes tend to pay more because when you're shopping that song, that's a hook for music supervisors or companies to say, hey, listen, this song is not in multiple libraries. So if you license this, it's not like, you know, it's been used a thousand times before. Like, you know, this is like something that's very exclusive to you. So it's more attractive, you know, an exclusive agreement is like a marriage, right? This is exclusive. Like we're doing this, it's us two making this work. So, you know, those are the, the options that musicians have. But then outside of those two, you can actually try to do it yourself, which, you know, I, I never discourage anybody from pursuing that path because anything's possible. You know, I, I don't believe in the word no, or you can't, you know, it's like, like I said, persistence wears down resistance. You put your mind to it, you can achieve it. So you can do it yourself where you're doing what I said, you'll look at the credits and you'll, you'll get the information for the music supervisors. You'll reach out to them on your own. However, it is more challenging, you know, full disclosure, because like I said, hundreds of people reach out to these people every day and the inboxes look crazy. So, you know, you're going up against this tide of competition as opposed to going through a licensing library that already has that pre-existing relationship. So it's like, hey, we co-signed the artist. Like, hey, this artist is, is very talented. You need to listen to this, you know, and by the way, what type of music are you looking for? You know, so we can check out our roster. Oh, you want a, a rock artist? Oh, well, we have such and such, you know, who's very talented. So it's kind of like, I would say like you're getting skipped to the front of the line, you know, when you go through a music licensing library. So, I mean, essentially that's, those are the, the different methods or approaches that can be used. All right, let's take a quick break from the podcast so I can tell you about a free special offer that we're doing right now exclusively for our podcast listeners. So if you get a ton of value from the show, but you want to take your music career to the next level, connect with a community of driven musicians and connect with the music mentors directly that we have on this podcast, or if you just want to know the best way to market your music and grow an audience right now, then this is going to be perfect for you. So right now we're offering a free two-week trial to our music mentor coaching program. And if you sign up in the show notes below, you're going to get access to our entire music mentor content vault for free. The vault's organized into four different content pillars. The first being the music, then the artist, the fans, and last but not least, the business. When you sign up, you'll unlock our best in-depth masterclasses from a network of world-class musicians and industry experts on the most cutting-edge strategies right now for growing your music business. On top of that, you'll get access to our weekly live masterminds where our highest level modern musician coaches teach you exactly what they're doing to make an income and an impact with their music. Then once a month, we're gonna have our Music Mentor Spotlight Series. And that's where we're gonna bring on some of the world's biggest and best artist coaches and successful musicians to teach you what's working right now. And one of the most amazing parts is that you can get your questions answered live by these top level music mentors. So a lot of the people that you hear right here on the podcast are there live interacting with you personally. So imagine being able to connect with them directly. On top of all that, you'll get access to our private music mentor community 
And this is definitely one of my favorite parts of Music Mentor, and, and maybe the most valuable, is that you're gonna have this, this community where you can network with other artists and link up, collaborate, ask questions, get support, and discuss everything related to your music career. So if you're curious and you wanna take advantage of the free trial, then go click on the link in the show notes right now and you can sign up for free. Uh, from there, you can check out all of the amazing content, uh, connect with the community, and sign up for the live masterclasses that happen every week. This is a gift for listening to our podcast, supporting the show. Um, so don't miss it out. Go sign up for free now and uh, let's get back to our interview. Mm, awesome. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, so it sounds like, you know, when it comes to finding a, a library, it's sort of, there's sort of like a filter, like they're a filter for supervisors where they get much more distilled, focused artists and they have more of a pre-, pre existing relationship, which just makes it quite a bit easier to be able to connect with those music advisors. It's not like it's impossible to reach out to them on your own and to build those relationships, but it's going to be a lot easier to find uh, a company that already has those pre-existing relationships. And for a lot of times for music supervisors, it's preferable to have this catalog. So to know that they're kind of having those pre, pre-filtered, pre-filtered tastes down so that they know that there's going to be some really high quality and they don't have to spend as much time digging through stuff. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it filters out the headaches because when you're, you're a company and, you know, and we, we've encountered this with our company too. It's like when you take on new artists, a lot of times there is a, a factor of being unpredictable. Like you don't know what you're getting into. Like you, you know, they can present well, the music can be great. And then it's like, all of a sudden, it's like this person just becomes a headache, right? So a lot of times music supervisors don't even want to deal with that. They're like, all right, you know, it's kind of like a vetting process. It's like, all right, you've you've been through this music licensing company. They co-sign you and all the artists that we've dealt with have been professional. All right, we trust this process, you know? So yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's pretty much what it is. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So let's say that someone here is interested in finding the right publishing company for, for them, how would you recommend that they research and find find the right library, find the right place for their music? Compile a list. Like a lot of times, like Google can be your best friend. I would say, you know, put like, you know, the, the top music licensing companies, right? Or top publishing company, whatever it is that you're looking for. And once you Google that, once you get that list, then you do your due diligence. And you go through each company, go through the different websites, see what the company is about, even read the reviews for these companies. Because the thing about artists, like artists are very vocal. Like if we don't like something, we're gonna write a crappy review. So, so you know, if, if a company's not good, chances are you're gonna see like really bad reviews online. Like, hey, this company, they, they're only giving artists 30%. You know, they're taking like 70% of the cut, you know? So look at that, look at those reviews and look at those splits too, because a lot of companies don't, do a lot of great splits sometimes there's some that do some really great splits and then there's some that say hey you know what we're the company we're getting the placement we're going to take the majority of you know we'll take all your publishing and we'll give you the writer's share but also we're going to take 70 percent of any revenue and that's like what like you know that's crazy so yeah do your due diligence use google check out the uh, the top licensing companies look at their roster too you know i've had musicians dm me from old companies that I used to deal with, like they had music in their catalog and they would say, Hey, you know, I saw that you had music in this library and, you know, I don't want to be too forward, but I just want to ask your advice before I reach out to them. What was your experience like? 
And that's a real question. You know, who could be mad at that? You know, it's like they want to avoid those pitfalls. So that's a that's a trick, too. It's like you can reach out to musicians and ask them, like, hey, are you having a, a positive experience on this with this company? You know, and mo- nine times out of 10, people will be honest. Like they have no reason to lie. They'll say, hey, this is a great company. Or they say, nah, they're like, this is hard times over here. so do you you think that when it comes to finding the right uh, music library is it should you also consider things like like the genre music or do you think that that's not as important as like other things to kind of distinguish or you know what are like the traits that you would look for in a good music library yeah so i would say the the traits well the first thing like we, we discussed before is you want to look at compatibility. So you, you want to make sure that that library is able to successfully pitch the type of music that you do. So when you go to their music section, it's going to show you like who are their, their top players. Cause they'll normally focus on those players. Like they'll have their pictures and they'll have their highlights. Oh, you know, we placed them on insecure and, you know, we got this show and that show, you know, these are like their marquee artists. So you want to look at that and compare your music against theirs and say, all right, if they're able to be successful with these artists, and if you have music that is kind of on that same wavelength, well, then you know the practicality is there. It's like, all right, you know, I'm going to pitch them because chances are they'll have a success rate with the type of music that I create. So that's one thing. Another thing to look at is, like they always say, the devil's in the details. So you want to look at what you're signing. A lot of times musicians are so passionate with their craft that they don't really pay attention to the business side. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of artists get taken advantage of. So you have to really pay attention to those agreements. And I always say, look at the term. I had one time a company presented an agreement. And after we reviewed it, I'm like, there's no term on this contract. Where's the term? They conveniently left out the term. And then when we addressed it with them, they said, oh yeah, because um, yeah, it's in perpetuity. So it's like, you know, wow. these, these are the type of pitfalls like you have to be aware of because you're signing this. And anytime you sign it, you're legally bound to this agreement. And I always say like, you know, make sure that there's a term specified on your agreement because sometimes things can start out really good and then end really bad. And then sometimes they can start a little shaky and end really good. But regardless of what the circumstances, you always want to make sure that you have an out in case you need it. You don't want to be married and stuck to a company or have a song that's amazing. And then you have a company come along with a great opportunity and say, hey, we want to give you such and such amount of dollars for this song. And it's an amazing opportunity. But now you're stuck in some crappy contract that's in perpetuity and you can't take advantage of the opportunity that's in front of you. So always read those details. That's like, that's pertinent. Mm. Oh man. So yeah, that's, that's crazy that they try to, to, to slip, slip one in, in there. Yeah. So. Try to slip a Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> try to slip a Mickey. So how about, we've got uh, a lot of questions coming in from the, from the audience here. So how about okay. we actually go to some Q and a and be able to answer some questions from awesome. people who are tuning in. And also uh, if you're watching this right now and you have any questions for Kyle, that you'd like to ask then now is the time for you to get your questions answered. So uh, let's first start with, do you recommend writing in your own style or should you adjust your style to fit a genre that works for sync? Are there any particular styles or genres that you found are more popular for sync placement? Wow, that's, that's a great question. So the, the first component of that question was, do you recommend writing in your own style or adjusting it? 
And I always say that the best thing to do is to be true to you and who you are. Like you can always tell like when a song is being forced and it's not specifically what an artist does. So, you know, we've all had that experience. Like I'm a music fan. I've loved music and I've had some of my favorite musicians make terrible music where I'm like, why did they make that record? Like, that's not what they do. You know, like it just doesn't sound genuine. So I think always remain true to yourself, like write the music that's true to you and the right opportunities will come. And the worst thing that you want to do is write a record that's not true to you and it blows up. And now you're a slave to this record that you, you know, it's not true. And now you have to keep up this facade. Now that aside, there's a difference between that and then someone who's eclectic. Now an individual that's eclectic musically, they have that capability to make multiple genres, multiple styles, and that's awesome. So if you're able to do that, then by all means, you know, venture out to different types of styles, because I always say that um, people have said that the, the quantity versus quality debate has always been a big deal in music, right? Like the ability of someone to actually put out a large quantity of music without sacrificing the quality of the content. And, you know, I tell musicians all the time, as far as music licensing, the more music you have in the pool, the more successful you'll be. That's just what it is, right? If you only, the guy that has three songs, that it took him three years to make, you know, his success rate might not be as great as the person that's like prolific and they have like a thousand songs and they're all good, you know? So you can actually manage the two, like, you know, focus on quality and quantity at the same time. And the last component of that question was, is there a specific genre that I find that music supervisors have asked us for a lot? It has been like recently, like big cinematic hip hop. So records that sound big, they have big buildups, big drops that are really in your face. Like that's really what they've been looking for lately. Slow tempo stuff, not so much to be honest with you. You know, they, they'd be really wanting these big records. So that's, that's really what we've been dealing with lately. Mm, cool. I, I love that. There's so much wisdom uh, just shared in that. There's like three good questions kind of like within, within one question, they were all, yeah. all really good. Like writing for you in your own style. Yeah, that, that reminds me of Michael Elsner described what you talked about with the, you can tell, you can tell when it's just not authentic and they're kind of trying to, yeah. it's like a, it's like a bad actor, you know, someone's like acting, they're kind of like reading their lines. And it's like, you can just tell us something's kind of like cut it off. It just doesn't feel, it doesn't, it doesn't feel authentic. doesn't feel right. Yeah. Cool. Good stuff. So next question asked, I know a lot of agreements have one to three terms and a lot of them automatically renew. How long would you give a music library or a sync agent to place the song? At what point would you end the agreements if no placements have been secured yet? I would say, you know, that that's a case by case basis. And I'll tell you why. Sometimes it can be a slow burn with music licensing. So if I sign an agreement for a two or three year term, I would let it run its course because I would like to see what they're able to do. Now, at the end of three years, if they weren't able to do anything, it depends on the term of the agreement. So it goes back to what we said before with the devil's in the details. If this is a non-exclusive agreement, then it's not hurting you to have that music in that library because you can have that music in multiple libraries. So you never know, it could be your fourth year and you, you get a, a placement for 20 grand. You know, like we get these opportunities all the time. There was one like two months ago for like 50 grand for like one song. You know, these are the types of opportunities. But, you know, you have to be in it to win it. So if it's a non-exclusive agreement, I would say let it rock. It's not hurting you. Now, if it was an exclusive agreement and you've had this song in this catalog for three years and they've done nothing for you, then maybe it's not the right music placement company for you, you know, and you would want to take it out there 
Or you might say to them, hey, you know what? Can we switch this to a non-exclusive agreement? Because I would like to make this music available in other uh, music licensing pools to increase my chances of landing a placement. You know, you, it's all business. It's always a business transaction. And always remember, do what's in your best interest. You know, like you're, the goal is to get your music heard and to get your music placed. So, you know, don't, don't be spiteful. I know artists, a lot of times they can get spiteful and say, oh man, it's been two years. They ain't did nothing. <laughs> you know, but, but you know, you, you got things take time. Things take time sometimes. Mm, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that's been one of the recurring themes and uh, throughout the conference as well, just the, the ability to be patient and to have like a long-term, a long-term view. And, you know, if you're planting seeds to have, to, to nurture those seeds and give them the opportunity to blossom and sprout and not necessarily be like digging it up and like checking in, like, is this growing yet? Why isn't this growing yet? Yeah. Oh, it's because you keep digging it up. You got to right. give it. And, that, and um, you know what too, Michael, that, that's society. I feel like social media plays a large part in that which is mm -hmm. terrible. It's like, everything is so quick. It's like quick, quick microwave, you know, and everybody's on social media and people are constantly comparing themselves. I tell people comparison is the thief of joy. So you can't compare your chapter one to someone's chapter 12. Every time you log into Instagram and if you see other musicians getting placements, don't be discouraged. You know, it's just their time and your time will come too, but you have to be patient. You know, haste makes waste. <laughs> so good man there's like a few one-liners you just dropped in there that really suck you can't compare <laughs> your chapter one to someone else's chapter 12 yeah <sighs> that's good yeah no it's it's so true and i mean it, it's also it's also one of the things that that i think happens a lot just in, in so many different domains is like you know like and it, it, like you said with, with social media especially it's so easy to compare yourself constantly to someone who's ahead of you and to not and try to to act as if you're already on chapter 12 when you're on chapter one and to feel ashamed of being at chapter one when it's like, no, like there's nothing wrong with that. Like it's okay to be on chapter one and to fully mm -hmm. embrace that and like go to chapter two. But just like trying to skip to chapter 12 is a recipe for, for disaster. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, and appreciate your journey too. I think that's, you know, everybody has a story. So appreciate, be appreciative of your journey and where you're at and just take it day by day. Mm. So good. All right. So uh, next question. I have a, a question as an artist. When you release a song under your artist's name, can you also place it for sync? Are there any issues or roadblocks with doing that? Content ID problems? Of course. Yeah. It's, as long as the, the, the song, you know, you, you don't have it tied up in any agreement. So for example, sometimes artists sign independent record deals. It might not necessarily be a major label, but even the, the independent labels, they have certain stipulations in their contracts. So if that song is exclusive to them, then they might be looking to pitch it, which could be a conflict for you. So you have to look at your agreement. Now, if you're just uh, totally independent, and let's say you're just putting music out through a TuneCore or DistroKid, or just one of these digital distributors yourself, then you're good. You know, I would just say be mindful of their content ID as well, because DistroKid, TuneCore, all these digital distributors, they have a content ID feature. And a lot of times when artists distribute their music, they don't pay attention. They'll just check off all the boxes. And then it's like, now their music's in content ID, they're getting these flags and they don't know why. So yeah, just be cognizant of that. But you can release music yourself and, and still put it in music licensing. And that's the beautiful thing about it. Like, you know, you can have active income, passive income, portfolio income from music because you're selling it yourself, you're getting your own streams, you're getting placements. And then because you're getting these placements, the popularity of the music explodes. So now you're getting income on the front end and the back end. So that's the name of the game, you know, generating multiple income streams 
So, you know, you're not working so hard. Your music is working for you. Awesome. So when someone's uploading their songs or DistroKid or TuneCore or any of these platforms, let's say that they're, someone is watching this right now and they're getting ready to release a new song and they're, they're like, okay, um, watching this conference, heard Kyle talk. This is awesome. I definitely want to figure this part out. I want to get, uh, I want to start planting the seeds to get my songs licensed. Would you recommend that they click the box that says content ID on the, on DistroKid, or would you recommend that they keep it off if they're planning on getting ready to, to shop out the songs to, to different libraries? Yeah, I would definitely keep it off because it just makes things very difficult for the music licensing company because you have to look at it like this. If a company reaches out and they say, hey, we love this song, we want to uh, pay $5,000 to use this song, they've essentially purchased the right to use the song. So if they're doing digital campaigns and it's constantly getting flagged with content ID, what it does is it ruffles feathers. So the company that paid that money they're now looking at the company like, hey, what's going on with your artists? Why are we getting flagged for this and we paid for this? And then now what it does is it kind of leaves a bad taste in their mouth in regards to not only the company, but also the artists. Because now they're like, well, you know what? We, we'd rather not deal with this company and this artist. We'd rather deal with this company over here because we never have these kind of problems. So just being mindful and being cognizant of the fact that you don't want to ruffle feathers. This industry is very much so relationship-based and your name holds weight. And you wanna make sure that even when your name is brought up in rooms that you're not present, that the conversation and the dialogue is always progressive. It's always positive. It's always like, oh, I know um, this artist. Yeah, their music is great. We, we don't have any issues with them. That's the kind of conversation you want. You know, any type of unnecessary misunderstandings or conflicts, you wanna avoid that at all costs. Mm, for sure. And I mean, when it comes to content ID too, like. If I remember right, you're not really missing out on that much in terms of like, like how much do you realistically get paid from like content ID if like your your song is like featured on a YouTube video, for example, and it gets let's say a million a million views on on YouTube. Yeah, the the content ID the the payouts for that are, are nominal at best. And I mean, you're not really looking at a lot of money. So you really want to look at the bigger picture. Like, and the bigger picture is that you want to be compensated fairly for your music while building successful relationships in the process. So we don't look at small money, we look at big money. And you know, that's just how we we move. And I tell my artists all the time, it's like, see the bigger picture. You know, don't think about, you know, getting a, a royalty statement for content ID from TuneCore for like two dollars and fifty cents for the entire month like that's what is that doing you know that can't even get you a cup of coffee yeah <laughs> right. right you know what i'm saying so it's like you know see the bigger picture yeah exactly and, and like it just for like a, a reference point do you know like is that like number like roughly what it usually is it's like a few bucks like from content even like let's say that someone does have like their song on a YouTube video that just happens to get like a million streams, you know, like roughly what that might equate to. You know, the, the specific numbers on that, I don't know, but I know like what the payouts look like and yeah. they are not worth it at all. It's like, you know, it has to be something that's really, really like substantial to even see. It's kind of like when you look at like the streaming numbers for like Spotify and, and all these other things, it's like, you need a lot. It takes a lot of streams and all these different things just to get like a decent sized payout. And that's why I always say, you know, lean on the side of, you know, common sense. Like if you're presented with this opportunity to get five to 10,000 for one song, 
I mean, it's, it's a no brainer, you know, mm, 100%. That's such a valuable concept, I think, to understand too, for, for anyone here who's kind of early on or starting out, maybe doesn't have a giant audience yet, or doesn't have a thousand or 10,000, you know, engaged fans is that it's going to be a lot harder to make like a serious revenue to make serious income from making like a dollar or two dollars like per per fan or like offering like a merch merch item for ten dollars you know you have to sell like mm-hmm. a lot of those merch items in order to make it sustainable but if you have something like on the high end like you can get one of your songs synced or, or placed for five thousand ten thousand dollars or what we're finding right now with a lot of our artists when it comes to like the original music is actually having higher ticket offers for three thousand dollars five thousand dollars for a custom songwriting experience or something with with a fan then you could have like a hundred or two hundred fans in in your audience when you're just starting out and you can sell a few of those high ticket offers and you can make some serious revenue and you're not going to be selling ten thousand dollars worth of you know, $10 items, unless you have a pretty um, significant audience. So I think that mm-hmm. there's a lot of wisdom in what you're talking about, if, especially earlier on when like you have to kind of, you're just starting out, you have to have a sharp, a sharp edge. So it's, it's smaller, but it's like, you're going, you're going really deep with, with those people. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. And, you know, and like we said before, it's about working smarter, not working harder, you know, like as far as like even the whole concept of performing. And I think COVID really showed that to a lot of people. It's like a lot of musicians were affected because touring was a large part of their income. And when that got diminished, people had to start to get creative. So they had to find other ways to generate income. And that's the beautiful thing about music licensing that I I fell in love with. It's like, you don't have to be physically present to make money. Like your music goes places and makes money for you, you know? And that's the name of the game. Like even when people talk about like financial literacy and investing in stocks, that's the name of the game. Like you want your, your money to work for you and make money for you. So it's the same thing. Like take that same approach with your music. It's like, you want your music to make revenue for you, even when you're sleeping. It's like, you know, when your music to be in rooms that you're not, but it's still generating income. That's so smart. Yeah. But so I talked a little bit about this with, with Michael, but the idea of assets and like the, the book, uh, rich dad, poor dad, and mm-hmm. how it's kind of like having a rental property, but like your music is really an asset. And like you're saying, can appreciate and value and it can bring you, bring you income. So kind of building this catalog is a uh, super, super valuable. Definitely. Definitely. Most definitely. Cool, man. Well, Hey dude, it's always, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on here and share some of the, the lessons and the wisdom and the knowledge that, that you've learned for anyone here who is interested in connecting more or diving deeper or, or learning from you. What's the best place for them to go to, to get more connected? Oh, most definitely. So they can go to our, our company's website, rhythmcouture.com. They can find us on Instagram at rhythmcouturebiz. And yeah, we're just always looking forward to connect with dynamic, great people. And yeah, this, this year has been great for us. We're just continuing to, to grow and make just dynamic moves as a company. So this is awesome, man. Appreciate the time, man. All right, okay. Kyle, you're the man. Really, really appreciate it. Hope you have a, a great rest of your weekend. Same to you. Same to you, man. Always a pleasure, Michael. Always a pleasure, man. Hey, it's Michael here. I hope that you got a ton of value out of this episode. Make sure to check out the show notes to learn more about our guest today. And if you want to support the podcast, then there's a few ways to help us grow. 
First, if you hit subscribe, then that'll make sure you don't miss a new episode. Secondly, if you share it with your friends or on your social media, tag us. That, that really helps us out. And third, uh, best of all, if you leave us an honest review, it's going to help us reach more musicians like you who want to take their music careers to the next level. The time to be a modern musician is now, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.